Hallelujah. Well, say it with me. The Lord is good. And his mercy endures forever. Amen. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. We'll dismiss the kids to let them go to their class now, too. Amen. I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. We want to continue the series on faith that we've been teaching for a number of weeks. Mark chapter 11 is, in my opinion, the most concise and complete instruction as to this thing called faith. Jesus cursed the fig tree when he was walking from Jerusalem to Bethany. He saw it as an unfruitful condition or circumstance in his life. He went to take figs from the tree, but there weren't any figs there, only leaves. And so he cursed the fig tree. He said, no man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard him. And the next morning they came back from Bethany toward Jerusalem, and the fig tree was dried up from the roots. Peter, calling to remembrance, said, Master, the fig tree that thou cursest is withered away. And verse 22, Jesus answering said unto them, Have faith in God. Now this is more accurately translated, Have the faith of God. We sometimes say, or somebody coined the phrase, The God kind of faith. When Jesus is speaking, he says, Have the God kind of faith. Now folks, if you couldn't have the God kind of faith, then he did us a disservice by indicating that we could or that we do have that same kind of faith. It's the same faith that God used to create the worlds. He spoke the worlds into existence. Jesus says it's mountain-moving faith. Jesus said this God kind of faith is the kind of faith that will move mountains or remove obstacles in your way, hindrances and things that try to keep us from walking in and taking part and everything that Jesus purchased for us. So Jesus answering said unto them, Have faith in God, or have the God kind of faith. For verily I say unto you, that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore I say unto you, What things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you shall have them. Now we've looked at this, as I said, for a number of weeks. And we've uh, approached the subject of faith from several different angles. And the thing that always jumps out at us and makes itself known is that the God kind of faith, the faith that Jesus told us to have, which obviously, as we said before, if he told us to have it and we don't have the ability to have it, then he's a partner to a fraud. It makes him a sinner. But by virtue of the fact that he tells us to have the God kind of faith, it has to inform us that that kind of faith can be used by us too. It had been real easy for Jesus to say, Now, Peter, don't get too worked up about this. My cursing the fig tree had something to do with going to the cross and all those things. But I did it because I was the son of God. Don't think that you'll be able to do this too. But in fact, he said just the opposite. He tells Peter, he tells his disciples, he tells us to have the God kind of faith. Well, what does that God kind of faith do? It speaks. 
Paul writing to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 13. He said, we having the same spirit of faith. Now, the same spirit of faith he's talking about is the faith that Jesus used on the earth when he was here on the earth. So when he said, we having the same spirit of faith, we believe and also speak. We believe and also or therefore speak. Notice how much speaking is emphasized in verse 23. Whosoever shall say unto the mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea. And shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. He mentions speaking the word uh, three times and believing only once. Yet most people in trying to operate in faith work on the believing part rather than the speaking part. Now, folks, I want you to turn with me over to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4 is the story of the father of faith, the story of Abraham, who the Bible tells us to pattern ourselves after or to follow his example. I'm going to start reading in verse 16. It says, Therefore it is a faith that it might be by grace. To the end the promise might be sure to all the seed, and not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the faith of us all. Paul simply is telling us that the Gentiles have the same right to the blessings of God as the Jews. So when he begins using this illustration of Abraham as the father of faith, he's not just the father of faith to the Jews, he's the father of faith to the Gentiles who believe in Jesus too. Verse 17, as it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations. This is what God told Abraham before he had any children. As it is written, I have made thee the father of many nations. Before him whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. Now, folks, notice that, that verse again. Here's what God does. Here where it says, before him whom he believed, that literally means like unto him. The scripture is telling us, Paul is telling us, that Abraham was like unto God in two specific ways. The faith of Abraham that we're instructed to emulate or to imitate operates like God in these two principles. Before him or like unto him whom he believed, even God who quickeneth the dead, he makes dead things alive, who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. Now, I want you to notice the principle that the Bible tells us that Abraham followed because it was a characteristic of God. It's a part of God's nature. He calls things that be not as though they are. He calls things that be not as though they are. Now, the first part of verse 17 shows us and tells us how God did that. God said to Abraham, I have made thee the father of many nations. Now, is that God saying, I will make thee? Did God say to Abraham, I will make thee the father of many nations? He said to him, I have made you the father of many nations. Folks, you need to understand something. When God says something, as far as he's concerned, it's done. Because there's nothing in the universe that can keep it from being done. So therefore, God, who is a faith God, showing us the God kind of faith principles. When God says it, it's as good as done. I have made thee the father of many nations. I have made thee the father of many nations. Well, now, what's Abraham going to do about that? If he's going to agree with God, he's going to have to say what God said. 
If God said, I have made thee the father of many nations, Abraham's going to have to start saying of himself that he's the father of many nations too. Now, how does that come about? God changed his name. God changed his name from Abram to Abraham. The part of the name Abraham that God added is a part of the name of Yahweh himself. So he gave Abraham a part of his name. So now Abraham, and that name means the father of many nations, every time Abraham calls himself by his new name, every time he instructs someone to call him by his new name, he's calling himself the father of many nations. Now, is he the father of many nations when he starts calling himself by his new name? No. I wonder how many people heard about Abraham's name change that started scratching their heads and saying, this guy's gone crazy. What is he doing calling himself the father of many nations? The only child he has is of Sarah's handmaid, Hagar. And, of course, we know that son to be Ishmael. But that's not the, the uh, child that God said was of promise. It's not the child that God told Abraham he would have. God said, I will uh, make the, your people as the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore through his wife, Sarah. So there would be a lot of room for people to, to um, criticize Abraham for calling himself by his new name. I'm sure there were a lot of people that didn't understand, and who would understand? It's not like Abraham went around telling people that God is appearing to him. Who would know that outside of his immediate family? He didn't try to explain to everybody that God had appeared to him. And so people on the outside, seeing Abraham's actions and the things that he's saying, and now the new name that he's giving himself, or that it appears to other people that he's given to himself. We know it was, a, it was a name given by God. But people on the outside are not going to understand that. They're going to think that he's crazy. And here he's almost 100 years old when he starts calling himself by this new name. But that didn't stop him from anything. He kept calling things that be not as though they were. Now what does the Bible tell us? Well, let's finish reading uh, some of the scripture before I make these comments. Let's go on to verse, seven, uh, verse 18. It says, Who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations. According to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. Folks, this is simply telling us that he had no natural circumstance, no physical circumstance in his body that indicated in any way whatsoever that he could have a child that God had promised. If he's going to start calling himself the father of many nations... It would have made more sense for him to start that when God first appeared to him 25 years before. When he was 75. But now his body has ceased to operate and to function reproductively. Sarah's body has ceased. She's been through menopause. Her body has ceased to operate reproductively. And folks, I personally believe that God waited till this late date in their lives to show the impossibility of the situation and that God and only God would be the one to overcome it. So he didn't have anything to hope in. He couldn't look at his body and say, well, I still look good. I'm still fit. Sarah, get ready. Tonight's the night. (laughs) 
there was nothing he could look at in his flesh or in Sarah's flesh that would give him any encouragement whatsoever to believe or to say that he could become the father of many nations. All he had to go on is what God told him. So who against hope, believed in hope, in other words, he believed what God said, that he might become the father of many nations. Now, now get this, folks. This is really important when you look at the, the timing or the tense of faith. He desires to become the father of many nations. So in order to become the father of many nations, he begins to say that God has made him the father of many nations. In other words, God's operating in such a way, the God kind of faith is operating in such a way, that in order to receive that which he desires, he has to begin to say that he already has it. Now this is what throws most people off when it comes to confession. Because the devil will be right there to tell you that you're lying when you call things that be not as though they were. Well, now let me ask you a question. And this is one way you can always stand up to the devil in this regard. Is it wrong for God to say that he has made Abraham the father of many nations? If it's wrong for us, it'd have to be wrong for God, wouldn't it? If it's a sin or a lie for us to call ourselves what the Bible says about us, even though it may not appear to be so in the natural or the physical realm. If the devil wants to convince us that we're lying, then why wouldn't God be lying when he said, I have made thee the father of many nations? See, God's word is true whether it looks like it or not. God's word is true because it's God's word. If God could speak doubt, doubt would then become the truth. Because God's word cannot fail. So if God could speak a lie, then the lie would become the truth. Now the devil wants to get you confused about that. But just suffice it to say that when we make our confession, if we make our confession based on something God said and not something that we come up with on our own, then we're always on solid ground. Because God's word cannot fail. And God cannot lie. So who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. That's referencing in Genesis chapter 15 where God shows Abraham the stars of the sky and he tells him to number them. And Abraham says, well, nobody can do that. And he says, so shall your seed be. So the promise again to Abraham is to become the father of many nations, an innumerable company of descendants. That's what God promised. That's what God said would be. And so Abraham, desiring for that to come to pass, begins to say it just like God said. God said it's already done. Verse 19, in being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about 100 years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. It doesn't say that he denied the circumstances. But folks, there's a big difference between physical facts and the truth. God's word is truth. No matter what the physical facts are, no matter what the physical circumstances are, God's word is true. And if we will hold on to God's word 
His truth will always change the physical conditions and circumstances. In the belly of the fish, Jonah said, I will offer thanksgiving of the, uh, the thanksgiving for the deliverance of the Lord. He said that when he was in the belly of the fish. Seaweed wrapped around his head. And he began saying that God had already delivered him. And then he made this statement. He said, they that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercies. Now, folks, that's pretty bold from the belly of the fish. He calls the fish that turns out to be his transportation, his mode of transportation to the nation of Nineveh. He calls that fish and everything surrounding that a lying vanity. Was it not a physical reality? It was a physical reality, but it still was a lying vanity based on what God's word said. So the the. The option, the choice for us is always clear. It's always the same. Are we going to believe what God's word says or are we going to believe what we see around us? Now here it doesn't say, it doesn't indicate that Abraham or Sarah for that matter denied the circumstances. They didn't start saying I'm not 100 and she's not 90. See a lot of people deny the facts around them and think that's faith and it's not. Faith is expecting God's word to change circumstances. Well, if it's going to change the circumstances, then what need is there to, to deny the circumstances when they exist? Now, the devil wants to keep you focused on the circumstances. He wants to get you looking at the circumstances. Because if we do that, then that nullifies God's truth from coming to pass. So he, not being awake in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about 100 years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. Verse 20, he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief. That was the criteria that Jesus gave for the God kind of faith in Mark eleven twenty-three, wasn't it? Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea and shall not doubt in his heart. And shall not doubt in his heart. In other words, shall not stagger at the promise of God, but shall believe in his heart, independent of your five physical senses, not according to the circumstances of the physical realm, but believe according to what God has said. Believe in his heart that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. One of the reasons Jesus focused so much on authority, one of the reasons he taught so much on authority, is because without an understanding and you know, a good working knowledge of the fact that God has given us authority on the earth, that he delivered that authority to mankind, never takes it back, never will take it back. Man is the one who has authority here on the earth. Well, how do we exercise that authority here on the earth? Same way God did before he gave it to us, through the words that we speak. Through the words that we speak. That's why we can believe that the words we say will come to pass especially when we're speaking God's word because we're the one with authority speaking truth that cannot be changed, that cannot lie. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief but was strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully persuaded that what he had promised he was able also to perform. Now I want to read these same scriptures from another translation, the American Standard Version. Now I'm not big on the American Standard Version. There's not a lot about it I like, but this is one thing I do. 
Verse 17, as it is written, A father of many nations have I made thee before him or like unto him whom he believed, even God who giveth life to the dead and calleth things that are not as though they were, who in hope believed against hope to the end that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. Things are pretty consistent with the other translation up to this point. Verse 19, and without being weakened in faith, he considered his own body now as good as dead, he being about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. The American Standard Version says Abraham did consider his body to be as good as dead, reproductively. What well, does that make a difference? It doesn't seem to make too much difference to me. Because he still is believing God. He's believing in the promise and the, the, the statement that God made. Regardless of the attention that he gives or the admission of the fact that his body is 100 years old or almost. And Sarah's almost 90. Because it ties it together in verse 20. Yet, even though his body is as good as dead reproductively. Yet, looking unto the promise of God, he wavered not through unbelief, but waxed strong through faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what he had promised, he, God, was able also to perform. Now, folks, God made, our, made mankind to operate according to, to the things that we see. Now, the devil wants to turn that around and make it things that you see in this physical realm. But that's not what I'm talking about. God made mankind, the mind of man, to operate in pictures. For example, if you say the word house, you don't see in yourself, within yourself or in your mind, the word house. You see a picture of a house, probably your own. If you say the word dog, you don't see the word D-O-G in your mind. You see the little mutt that runs around and nips at your ankles. Now what you see is different from what I see. If I say the word house, I see my house. If I say the word dog, I see my dog. But God created man. He could have made man to work any way he wanted to. He could have created any, any, anything differently than he wanted to concerning man on the earth. But he made man so that he operates according to pictures. According to pictures. Now what puts the picture in our mind when we speak, when we say something? It works in the areas that we just gave as an illustration. But it also works according to the word. If you say what the word says about you, you will see yourself with what the word says. And folks, you say what you see. As well as seeing what you say. You remember the instruction God gave to Joshua. Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8. He said this book of the law meaning the word of God shall not depart out of your mouth. But thou shalt meditate therein day and night. That thou mayest observe to do according to all that's written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous. And then thou shalt have good success. Notice he connects the mouth with meditation. This word of God shall not depart out of your mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night. In other words, he's telling Joshua, keep saying the things that I've told you. Because every time you say the things that I've told you, you see yourself with whatever I told you would be. 
And here it says that Abraham looked unto the promise of God. Now, folks, you can look at anything you want to. A lot of times people talk about failures in faith or inadequacies that they have in faith. A lot of times people will say things like, well, I'm just weak in faith. Not all of us are strong in that regard. And I'm just weak in faith. Well, notice how Abraham was strong in faith. Abraham was strong in faith by giving glory to God and being fully persuaded that what he promised he was able also to perform. In other words, he was strong in faith because he looked at the right thing. Now, the devil wants you to see the wrong thing. That's why he throws circumstances at you. That's why he speaks to your mind. He wants you to take the words that he's speaking to your mind and say them about yourselves because that will create a picture of defeat, a picture of failure. So when we say what God's word says, it creates a situation where we're looking at his word. Those wonderful scriptures in Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 20 through 22. My son, attend unto my words. Incline thine ear unto my sayings. Let them not depart from before your eyes and keep them in the midst of your heart. For they are life unto those that find them and health to all their flesh. Now to whom is the word of God life? Who are the ones that find it? And to whom is the word of God health to all their flesh? The ones that keep seeing it by saying it. The ones that keep seeing the word, speaking the word. Because that word creates a mental picture of whatever the God has promised, in, promised to us in and through his word. So Abraham had to look at something. He's not looking at the condition of his body. He's not denying the facts. But he's not looking at the condition of his body. So what is he going to look at? He's looking at the promise of God. He's looking at the promise of God. He refuses to quit looking at the promise of God. He's keeping them before his eyes. And they turn out to be life and health to him. Just like they can and should to you and me. Now we've talked a lot about Numbers chapter 13. Why don't you go back there with me? We'll just hit some high spots real quickly. Numbers chapter 13 tells the story of when Israel, after being delivered from bondage, the bondage of Egypt, they come to the promised land. And Moses, the leader of the children of Israel at the time, sends 12 spies, one spy, one person from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And these 12 spies go into the promised land to scout it out, to find out what's there. We'll start reading in verse 25. And they returned from searching of the land after 40 days. And they went and came to Moses and to Aaron and to all the congregation of the children of Israel under the wilderness of Paran to Kadesh and brought back word unto them and unto all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. The Bible tells us in the previous verses that they cut down a cluster of grapes that was so big they had to carry it between two people on a pole. They brought back other fruit of the land to show how good it was. Well, God told them it was a land flowing with milk and honey. And they told him and said, sure, we came into the land whither thou sentest us. And surely it flows with milk and honey, and this is the fruit of it. In other words, God told them the truth. Nevertheless, the people be strong that dwell in the land, and the cities be walled and very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and by the coast of Jordan. 
And Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, Folks, I want you to understand something. The devil would, do, would like nothing more than you to get so distracted and so wound up about things. Because when you're wound up about things and you're distracted, it's hard to come back to the place where you think about what God said and what God promised. He wants you to ignore, forget, or pass over the promises God has made to you. And he usually does that by trying to wind things up and speed things up. The more he can get you in tumult and clamor, the easier job he's going to have to defeat you. But Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. Paul said, writing to the Hebrews, he said, We which have believed do enter into rest. If you know God's on your side, you don't have to get wound up about anything. When you know God is with you, when you know this God kind of faith put into practice will produce results, there's nothing to get anxious or upset about. So Caleb said, Caleb was one of the 12 spies. He saw the same things they saw. Caleb said, let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men that went up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. And they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying. Now, folks, remember the unchanging law of God. Jesus explained it when he told us about faith in Mark eleven twenty three: You will have what you say. So they brought up an evil report, saying. The land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. And all the people we saw entered are men of great stature. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants. Now notice this phrase. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. Notice how they saw themselves. After seeing the walls around the city of Jericho, after seeing the other people that inhabited the land, different parts of the land that was all part of what God had promised them, they saw themselves. They must have been comparing themselves, their own strength or their own military might against the people in the promised land. They said, we see ourselves as grasshoppers, and that's the way our enemies see us too. Now, folks, this is two and a half years after God has delivered Israel from the bondage of Egypt. Two and a half years. They went first to Mount Sinai and camped there for a period of time. You remember that was where they made the golden calf and Moses brought down the 12, uh, the 10 commandments on the tables of stone and broke them. There were a lot of things that happened regarding their disobedience and their rebellion. But then they go on the move and they come here to the edge of the promised land. Now I'm going to turn back to Exodus to remind you of some things that the Bible tells us about God's deliverance. I'm going to come to Exodus chapter 13 beginning in verse 17. Clearly, Caleb and chapter 14 of Numbers tells us Joshua too. Clearly, they saw the same circumstances that the other 10 spies, uh, 10 of the 12 spies saw, with the exception of Caleb and Joshua. They saw the same things, but they came up with two different conclusions. The 10 spies came up with the conclusion that we can't do it. Caleb and Joshua said we are well able to do it. How did they come up with a different conclusion? 
Well, let me see if I can show you here. Exodus 13, verse 17. And it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go, that God led them out not through the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near, that was the closest route, in other words. For God said, lest peradventure the people repent when they see war, and they return to Egypt. But God led the people about through the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. And the children of Israel went up harnessed out of the land of Egypt. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For he had straightly sworn the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones away hence with you. And they took their journey from Succoth and encamped in Etham in the edge of the wilderness. Notice verse 21. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them by the way. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light to go by day and by night. He took not away the pillar of the cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from among the people, from before the people. Chapter 14. Um, Well, let me summarize some of this. Pharaoh comes out against Israel with the purpose of destroying them. But let's skip down. To verse 13, Exodus 14, verse 13. Moses said unto the people, Fear ye not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show to you this day. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you shall see them again no more forever. The Lord shall fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. And the Lord said unto Moses, Wherefore criest thou unto me? Speak unto the children of Israel that they go forward. It looks like the physical facts and the physical circumstances and the physical realities say that they're hemmed in. They've got mountains on either side of them. They've got the army of Pharaoh coming from behind them. And the only thing in front of them is the Red Sea. Where do they go? Well, God speaks to Moses in in what seems to me to be a very interesting way. He speaks to Moses as if Moses should see that the answer is to part the Red Sea before he ever goes to God to talk about it. When God says, why are you crying out to me? Again, here's an indication of the authority that man has on the earth. If he has to change the laws of physics to accomplish the will and the plan and the purpose of God, how big a deal is that? God has just demonstrated some of those very same things with the plagues of the locust and the hail and the fire and all the other things that took place. He's shown that physical realities are even the laws of physics. Natural laws of physics are nothing compared to God's word when it's put in practice. I think God expects us to take some things for granted when it comes to our authority and his help for us to accomplish what he's given us to do that we fail to take advantage of. It's almost as if God's saying, Moses, don't come to me about this. You handle it. And then he tells them how to handle it. Lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, and the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. And I, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they shall follow them. And I will get me honor upon Pharaoh and upon all of his hosts, upon the chariots and upon his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten me honor upon Pharaoh, upon his chariots and upon his horsemen. Folks, this is the strongest military force on the face of the earth at that point in time. And God says, I've got something to prove. Verse 19, and the angel of God, which went before the camp of Israel, removed and went behind them 
And the pillar of the cloud went from before their face and stood behind them. And it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. And it was a cloud and darkness to them, but it gave light by night to these, so that the one came not near the other all the night. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. Now, folks, remember this is a crowd of two to seven million people, depending on whose estimates you accept. If you take the smallest number, the parting of the Red Sea couldn't have been a little aisle down through the, the waves. If this is something that millions of people are going to cross in a, a, a matter of six or so hours, it's talking about something that was wider than we might imagine. Well, if Pharaoh's army is separated from the armies of Israel, the people of Israel, by this pillar of fire and pillar of cloud, how big does the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud have to be to keep the Egyptians from going around it? See, we see the pictures that are drawn where it looks like this one uh, column. I started to say small column, but not necessarily. But folks, if it's something that keeps the Egyptian army at bay, which was a big force, Pharaoh took everybody he had with him out on this adventure, then how big does this thing have to be? We call it a pillar of fire because that's the word the Bible uses, but it was, it was really a wall. Had to be. So it separates. God's separating the children of Israel from Pharaoh's army through this pillar of fire and pillar of cloud. Verse 22, And the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea upon the dry ground, and the waters were a wall unto them on their right hand and on to their left. And the Egyptian pursued and went in after them to the midst of the sea, even all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And it came to pass that in the morning watch the Lord looked unto the host of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and of the cloud and troubled the host of the Egyptians and took off their chariot wheels that they drove them heavily so that the Egyptians said, Let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fighteth for them against the Egyptians. Now here's what I want you to understand, folks. This wall that's called a pillar of fire, it's following Israel into the sea. It's following Israel into the Red Sea. Because otherwise, how could the Pharaoh's chariots get into the middle of the sea? So it's continually keeping them separated. But it has to be following from behind them. Can you see that? So when Egypt goes after them, the, Pharaoh, the chariots of Pharaoh go in after them. God troubles them. By knocking the wheels off their chariots. And the Lord said unto Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come again unto, upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. And Moses stretched forth his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its strength. When the morning appeared, and the Egyptians fled against it, and the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. He had let the Egyptian army get uh, close to the other side to be able to destroy all of them when the waters came back together. So here's the picture. Israel is going over on dry land. But apparently you could see through this pillar of fire. It says God looked through it. And so the children of Israel are being followed by the pillar of fire into the Red Sea to bring about the, the placement 
of the Egyptian army so that the sea would destroy them. Could they see through it as well? Could they look also? I mean, I don't know who, who would want to be at the, the rear end of this column because it would seem like you're the one under the greatest peril, especially if you get information and see that Pharaoh's armies are coming after you. It sure make you want that, that pillar of fire to hold steady, wouldn't it? I'm sure some people thought God didn't know what he was doing, not keeping them from ever entering into the sea on their own. I'm sure that somebody came up with the idea, even if they had known what was going to happen before the fact, that it would have been just as good for Moses to get the children of Israel across to the other side and then let the sea come together and Pharaoh's armies never even be dealt with. But that's not the way God wanted it to be. So it tells about how God destroyed the enemies of, uh, of Israel. It tells how the, he destroyed the armies of Pharaoh. Now, folks, we just read a little bit earlier in the previous chapter about the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. That pillar of fire didn't stop when they got across the Red Sea. That pillar of fire was what led them, or cloud by day, fire by night. It's what led them to Mount Sinai. It's what's led them from Mount Sinai to the edge of the promised land. Now remember what we started talking about, and that is the ten spies saw something different than Caleb and Joshua saw. Or maybe we should say it the other way around. Caleb and Joshua saw something different than the ten spies did. Caleb and Joshua saw something that wouldn't be any kind of hindrance or a problem for God at all. The ten spies didn't see that. What made Caleb and Joshua able to take that position and have that position of faith that all of Israel could have followed them into and received the promise of the promised land, the blessing of the promised land? What is everybody looking at? Well, Caleb and Joshua are looking at that pillar of fire. That same pillar of fire that defeated the enemies in Egypt. The Egyptian army, the strongest force on the face of the earth. But everybody else, the other ten spies I'm talking about, and the congregation itself, they seem to be looking at something else that caused them to forget that God was their deliverer. Now, if you were Caleb and Joshua, well, if you were anybody in that band of Israelites, what would that pillar of fire and pillar of cloud mean to you? Why did they not look at this pillar of fire that they're seeing every day or every night, the pillar of cloud that they're seeing every day? Why are they not looking at this thing as proof, as evidence, as assurance, as a guarantee that God's still with them? If God's not still with them, what's the fire in the cloud for? Where did that come from? Who did that come from? Folks, remember Abraham, the father of faith, he looked at something that held him steady. He looked at something that kept him from saying, speaking doubt against God's word or against God's promise. He's looking at something. Well, the Bible says he looked at the promise. What is Israel looking at? They should be looking at that fire. They should be looking at that pillar of cloud. They should be looking at that 
to identify that the God of the universe is still with them. But they chose not to. Folks, you can choose whatever you want to look at. You choose it by the words of your mouth. What you say is what you'll see. And what you see is what you'll say. So the more you say God's word, the more you speak God's word, the more you see yourself with the answer. The more you see yourself with the answer, the more you speak God's word. And the more you speak God's word, the more you see yourself with the answer. And the more you see yourself with the answer is what you say will lead you to saying God's word. Has it become annoying yet? (laughs) Folks, that's why the Bible talks about what you say so much. What you say is what you see. What you see is what you continue to say. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Paul has just finished telling us in the 11th chapter. He's just finished giving, giving this list of Hall of Fame of heroes of faith. And chapter 12 tells us why that's important for us to see and understand. Verse 1. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, meaning those heroes that were identified in the previous chapter, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Now, folks, get what he's saying. He's saying this is the way that we need to uh, live our Christian lives. This is our Christian walk. This is the way that we're supposed to do this. Well, how are we supposed to run with patience the race that is set before us? Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of of the throne of God. We don't have a pillar of fire to look at, but we do have Jesus to look at. We don't have the pillar of cloud to look at. We've got something better, and that's Jesus to look at. So what do we look at? Well, Paul said, Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. So we certainly want to look at Jesus on the cross, but he's not still there. So we don't want to keep that as the only thing that we see. We want to see Jesus raised again from the dead. We want to see Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father. But we also have to keep in mind what he paid for. When he went to the cross, what did he pay for? Well, the Bible says he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. So if you want to walk in health, you need to see Jesus on the cross paying the price for sickness and disease. The more we say what God's Word says, the more we see ourselves with it. So if you want to walk in health, then we need to say, himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses, and with his stripes we are healed. If you want to walk in blessings, the chastisement of our peace was upon Jesus too. He paid the price on the cross for that. So if you want to walk in blessings, then we need to say, God supplies all of our needs according to his riches in glory. 
if we want to walk in the true measure of abundance that God has planned for us and that Jesus died for, then we need to quote something like 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9, which says Jesus was made poor for our sakes so that we through his poverty might be made rich. Now, folks, remember these are things that are already done, not things that will be done. These are things that are already accomplished. This puts us in Abraham's place where God has said things about us that it may not appear to be true from the natural circumstances. You may not look rich, but if we want to become rich, then we have to say it the way God said it. Jesus was made poor for our sake so that we through his poverty might be made rich. Now, if you want to look that word rich up, you'll find out that it means wealthy. Who wants to be rich? You prideful things, you. <laughs> See, the idea of, doing, of, of saying something like that or signing on to something like that has been ingrained in uh, through religion, has been ingrained into our thinking to such a degree that we think that's contrary to the purpose of God. Well, if God didn't want it, why did Jesus pay for it? Now, he doesn't want us to be covetous. But Jesus paid for us to be rich. Now, if you don't want your share, I'll take it. <laughs> don't want anybody to feel forced into this. If you'd rather sit back and take a pious position and look down your nose at the rest of us, why, well, I would never think such a thing. Well, apparently God thought of such a thing because it's part of what the Bible says Jesus paid for. But don't worry, you don't have to have it. He won't force it on you. But if you want to, by faith, take hold of it, you can. Now, folks, this is what Paul, inspired by the Holy Ghost, said our Christian life should be. We should be walking just like Israel should have for the entirety of the two and a half years after they came out of Egypt. They should have been looking at that pillar of fire or that pillar of cloud every time they took a step. Every step they took, they should have been saying, this pillar of fire is going to deliver us under the promised land. Every step that they took should have been with their eyes on the one who's leading them to the promised land. They should have been saying over and over and over again to themselves, this is a conclusion that Caleb and Joshua came to. Why couldn't the rest of them? Well, the fact is they could have. They chose not to. But Caleb and Joshua weren't phased at all. Not even by the walls of this, around the city of Jericho. So they must have been meditating on the greatness of God who delivered them from Egypt. What other assurance would they have had? Whatever, what other experience would they have had? For them to take the positions that they did by saying we're well able to overcome it. They've been watching that pillar. They've had their eyes on that pillar step by step, day by day. They've been walking for two and a half years. All to accomplish one specific thing and that is to take possession of the land God had already said was theirs. We should be doing the same things with what the Bible says Jesus paid for us. With his stripes, we were healed. Through his poverty, we've been made rich. The favor of God surrounds us. Everything we put our hand to prospers. 
See, folks, the reason why these confessions are so important is because without saying them, you won't see yourself with them. And if you don't see yourself with them, you can't take hold of them. When it comes to the subject of healing, so often people get caught up in things like Paul's thorn. What they think is Paul's, what they think is the Bible saying that Paul had sickness and disease in his body. And so they never confess the word of healing for themselves because it's raised a question for them or in them, if God wasn't willing to heal Paul, why would he heal me? But if you start saying what the Bible says, then the idea of Paul's thorn being sickness and disease vanishes away. It's almost as if it just washes down the drain. Paul's thorn in the flesh was a messenger of Satan, not a messenger of God. And he clearly says that it was persecution. It delivered blow after blow. Sickness and disease does not deliver blow after blow. Furthermore, he said, I've learned because of what the Lord told me, my grace is sufficient for you. He said, I've learned to glory in my infirmities for when I am weak, when I'm weak in the flesh, God's strength is upon me. Well, if God's strength was upon him and it was sickness and disease, the only way that strength would have made any difference is if God would have healed him. So even the people that try to hold on to the idea that it was sickness and disease, they can't come to the conclusion, legitimately come to the conclusion and agree with what Paul said about the strength of the Lord being made manifest in him. But if you'll just start saying what the Word says, if you'll just start speaking what the Bible says is yours, if you'll just start speaking healing, you'll see yourself with healing. You start speaking, yourself with, uh, speaking of yourself as having an abundance. You'll see yourself with an abundance. And then that will bring into reality, physical reality, all the things that you have been saying because you've taken sides with God's Word instead of against it. Looking unto Jesus. Looking unto Jesus. Folks, there's no problem that you and I are facing or ever will face that's greater than the one that he's placed on the inside of you. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. He's greater than anything in the world. That's why the Christian life should be a daily walk with God. And by that, I mean specifically saying what God's word says about us. We may be in the same situation as Abraham. We don't look like the father of nations. We may not look like what God's word has said Jesus accomplished for us. But the more that we say it, the more it will bring us into the place where we will become who God's Word says about us or who God's Word says we are. Let's pray. Father, we magnify your holy name. We thank you for the simple truth of your Word. We thank you that you're not a man that you could ever lie, nor that you're the son of man that you could ever repent. We thank you that Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses, and with his stripes we are healed. We thank you, Father, that through Jesus' poverty, he was made poor for our sakes, that through his poverty, paying the price for physical well-being, material well-being, we have been made rich. We thank you, Father, that the favor of God surrounds us. We thank you, Father, that everything we put our hand to prospers. We thank you, Father, that there is no power, no situation, nothing that the devil can do 
or bring against us that is ever greater than the one that lives inside of us. Because you are on our side, we need not fear. We do not fear for you will help us, you will strengthen us, you will uphold us with the right hand of your righteousness. And in that righteousness we are established. No trouble, no terror, no problem will come against us that you have not already made a way out and a way to escape for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all that you did. We declare that we are the healed of God. We declare that the blessing of Abraham is ours. In Jesus' precious name, amen. 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 Well, let's all stand together. Let me add my encouragement to coming to the service tonight at 6 when Patsy will be with us. She's always, she always does a great job, and I know it will be a great blessing to you. Say it with me. I'm healed by the stripes of Jesus. I'm made rich by the poverty of Jesus. Amen. Have a great day, folks.